0: Well, good morning. My name is Eli, and I'm here to tell you about my church, the very first church, the church in Jerusalem. It was a day much like any other day. I was seated on the pavement at the entrance to the temple, and it was approaching 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the hour of prayer. I was a beggar, having been born lame 40 years earlier. I had been calling out to the worshipers who were on, uh, in a hurry to get to prayers when two very ordinary-looking men stopped and said three startling words to me. Look at us. Now, you need to understand, people rarely looked at me. It made them uncomfortable, and I rarely looked at them. The longer you are forced to beg, the more worthless you feel, and the less you tend to look people in the eyes. So when these guys said, look at us, that really got my attention. Then the leader, a guy named Peter, said, we don't have any money, but we have something even better. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then he grabs me by the right hand and pulls me to my feet. The next thing I knew, I was walking like any other man. It was incredible. I was like a kid in a candy store. I was walking and leaping and praising God. And I followed Peter and John into the temple. I had been healed by the Messiah. Let me tell you, there was joy in the house of the Lord that day, and I could not be silent. I had been a beggar, and suddenly I was a son of the king. I had been a prisoner bound my lameness for 40 years, and suddenly I'd been set free. That afternoon, the house of the Lord was filled with praise. In fact, could I ask you to sing that song right now? And as you're singing it, try to put yourself in my sandals. There's joy in the house of the Lord.
1: Let's go ahead and stand. the God who was we worship the God who is we worship the God who evermore will be he opened the prison doors he parted the raging sea Man, our my God he holds the victory yeah. there's joy in the house of the Lord there's joy in the house of the Lord today and we won't be quiet We shout out your praise, there's joy in the house of the Lord, our God is surely in this place, and we won't be quiet, we shout out your praise, we shout out your praise, yeah, we sing to the God who heals, we sing to the God who saves, We sing to the God who always makes a way. Come on, sing this. As He hung upon that cross, then He rose up from that grave. My God, still rolling stones away. We
0: So that was my introduction to the very first church. And i got to tell you, it was like riding the crest of a wave. It was unbelievable. There was, there was this awe in the church. And it wasn't all about the miracles. Don't get me wrong, there were miracles. But uh, it was about the presence of God among us. People could not stop talking about Jesus. We were eating meals together. We were worshiping together. We were were, uh, sharing our possessions together. And people were being wonderfully saved. I mean, the church felt unstoppable. And believe me, our detractors tried to stop us. They knew that a notable miracle had taken place that day at the temple, but instead of admitting it and riding the wave, they actually tried to stop it. Have you ever tried to stop a wave? Doesn't work. And it didn't work for them. They threw Peter and John in jail. They interrogated and threatened them the next morning if they dared to speak any more in Jesus' name. And they just spoke more about him. They locked them up again. And when they sent, and when they sent for them in the morning, they found the prison locked the cell completely empty, an angel had come in the night and released them from jail, and they were already in the temple preaching that morning. How did our leaders respond? Did they say, what? How on earth? This is amazing. No. No, they beat them and threatened them some more. You know, when I look back, it was almost like there was a war declared On truth. Well, my name really isn't Eli, as you guessed. My name is Dale. My wife, Jerusha, and I have been part of LCF for about seven years. We uh, come to the early service, having been awake for about three hours by that time. Not because we have any children at home anymore, but, um, you know, when you get old, you wake up early. So I don't know most of you, but it's a privilege to be able to share with you from the book of Acts this morning The War on Truth. Does that sound a little bit familiar? I don't know that there has been any time in our lifetime here in our country where truth has been under assault like it is today. Our history is being rewritten. Monuments are being torn down with impunity. Civil discourse has been replaced by incivility and violence. Anyone who dares to speak something contrary to the uh, new social and political agenda is often shouted down as intolerant, biggers, bigots, haters, racists, all in an attempt to try to silence any kind of dissent. Lying by political leaders, and the media has become so commonplace, that I think a lot of us just kind of throw our arms up and say, well, I guess we can never know what the real truth is. Many are actually trading the truth For my truth. The idea that objective or absolute truth exists is now viewed with suspicion and even great antagonism. The question, What is a woman? (laughs) is no longer a simple question with a straightforward answer. You may have read some of blogger and author Matt Walsh, who went to the streets uh, last year sometime and asked people, What is a woman? And uh, he was often met, not just with resistance, but with real anger. One young, educated uh, man said, that word truth, because he said, I'm just trying to get at the truth. He said, that word truth is deeply transphobic to me. And if you keep probing, we're going to stop this interview right here. People don't seem to like truth. But the assault on truth is not just limited to news cycles and social trends. It's, It's invading our families and invading our church. In Canada, which is my country of birth, it is perfectly legal and laudable to encourage somebody to change their gender or to change from a heterosexual expression to any other expression. But you know, it is now illegal in Canada to even suggest somebody change in the other direction. Or, what can we say about this central tenet of our faith that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. Well, it is still legal to say that, but it's not very popular. In fact, you probably be called intolerant for saying that. A survey was released last year in 2021, conducted by Pro Ministries, that revealed that amongst 18 to 39-year-olds who profess faith in Christ, this isn't just anyone, but those who profess faith in Christ the 18 to 39-year-old group, 60% of them agreed with the statement that, quote, Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus are all valid ways to God. Folks, uh, there is clearly a war on truth today, and I think it's just getting started. But the war on truth, as unsettling as that may be to us, is not new at all to the church. In fact, that was the very context in which the church in Jerusalem was born. You might remember when Jesus stood before Pilate, right before his death, Jesus said, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Do you remember what Pilate said? (laughs) What is truth? And it wasn't a curious question, it was a cynical question. Just a few weeks before that, Jesus had raised a man named Lazarus from the dead, and it was indisputable. It only happened a few miles from Jerusalem. And people were coming in droves to see this man, Lazarus, and it said many were believing in him. What did the religious leaders do? Did they say, well, we can't argue with that? No, it says, John 12, 10, the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. They were already planning to kill Jesus. Now they're going to try to kill Lazarus too. They're going to try to kill the truth. Dispose of the truth. Why? Because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. That's what they did with the truth in those days when Jesus rose from the grave and the soldiers who had been guarding the tomb fell to the ground like dead men. When they finally came to and they went to the authorities, do you remember what they said? The authorities said to the soldiers, if anyone questions you, tell them His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if the governor catches wind of it, we'll keep you out of trouble. (laughs) The original fake news. I mean, there was a real problem with truth in those days, wasn't there? And the same thing happened here in Acts chapter 4. With the healing of this lame man, verse 14 says, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they, the religious leaders, had nothing to say in reply. Then they said amongst themselves, what shall we do? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So what do they do, bow their knee and put their faith in Jesus? No, no, they threaten them. And they say, if you speak any more in this Jesus man's name, we'll beat the tar out of you. And they do. But it doesn't work. In fact, as you read through the, uh, the uh, uh, book of Acts, you'll see in there something that have, has been called growth reports. It's like a little literary highlighter pen that Luke used to emphasize that no matter what happened inside or outside the church, their response allowed them to keep on growing, to flourish. For example, Pentecost happens, and it's immediately followed by a growth report. There were 3,000 souls added that day. Then Peter and John are thrown in prison, chapter 4. And there's immediately after that a growth report. The number of believing men came to be about 5,000. The purity of the church is threatened by sin internally. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And there's another growth report. All the war believers were constantly added. The apostles are then flogged, and it's followed by a growth report. Every day they kept right on teaching. There's discrimination in the church towards a group of widows, And then there's a growth report. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr and another growth report. Those who have been scattered went about preaching the word and it continues on and on and on all through the book of Acts. Every time the church faced opposition, it flourished even more. Instead of turning inward, they turned outward. Instead of retreating, they advanced instead of fear, faith. Instead of pouting, praising. Instead of setbacks, progress. And in spite of suffering, rejoicing. So here's the question for us today How did they do it? How did they flourish under fire instead of flounder? And for our sakes today, how can we as the people of God flourish? Under fire? How can we flourish in a context in which we are living today? Could their example there in Acts have helped us to thrive and not just survive a pandemic? If our government decided to completely remove our charitable status or to monitor and prosecute us for anything that we say in public that is contrary to the accepted norm? Or to revoke our religious exemption when it comes to employment law and force us to hire regardless of sexual preference? Could we flourish instead of flounder? What if under the guise of religious harmony, it were no longer permissible to invite someone of a different faith to embrace our faith? Now, these are no longer hypothetical questions. And this morning, I'd like to suggest from this passage, Acts 3 through 5, four commitments that we must make if we are to flourish as a people under fire. The first commitment is simply this, that we need to express the truth. We need to speak the truth of Christ. The reason the believers in the early church were threatened challenged, sanctioned, pursued, imprisoned, sometimes even killed, was not because of what they believed. It was because of what they said. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them not for believing in Jesus' name. They didn't believe in Jesus' name. They arrested them for speaking, teaching, and proclaiming. In other words, being verbal about who Jesus was. And when they sanctioned the apostles a little bit later, they did not sanction their belief. They sanctioned their speech. Verse 17 says, But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak, No longer to any man in this name. And Peter's response in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 4, he says, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Folks, you can believe whatever you want, and nobody will ever give you trouble. But the believers in the early church understood that silent Christianity Was not an option. We need to commit ourselves to speak the truth of Christ. And when they spoke, they didn't stutter, they didn't dilute the truth. They simply, clearly, unashamedly, and I believe very graciously, like their master would have, spoke the truth. Look at Peter's initial answer in chapter 4, verse 10. He says, Let it be known to all of you that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Very clear. You killed him. God raised him. He is the only one who can save you. Abraham can't save you. Moses can't save you, Buddha can't save you, Muhammad can't save you, Confucius cannot forgive your sins, the Dalai Lama cannot make you right with God, there are not many ways to God, there is but one way to God, and that is through the shed blood of the resurrected Christ. Now, is that intolerant? Not if it's true, it isn't. That is the most loving thing I can say, if it's true. If my neighbor, for example, were dying of a rare, inoperable, terminal cancer, and I had been wonderfully, undeniably healed of that very same cancer, it would not be hateful or narrow-minded or intolerant or judgmental or bigoted for me to tell him how I had been healed And to urge him to pursue the same means. It would be the most loving thing I could do, and I wouldn't do it angrily or judgmentally or condescendingly if I wanted him to listen. I would do it kindly and humbly and graciously, but I do it. I'm not talking about forcing people to listen to the truth. I'm not talking about taking your Bible and cornering your co-worker somewhere and making them listen to a gospel presentation. I'm simply saying that a church that lovingly speaks the truth about Christ when the occasion presents itself is a church that will flourish under fire. And by the way, in case you think that you're not up to the task because you're not a pastor, nah, not so. No, God doesn't need more pastors to speak the truth. God needs more ordinary people like you and me to speak the truth. The church will not thrive because of silver-tongued orators. The church will thrive because of spirit-filled believers. Silver-tongued orators, these guys were not. Not at all. In fact, if you look in verse 13, it says this about them. Now as they, the religious leaders, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Those two words that are used there to describe them are very interesting. The first word, uneducated, is grammatos. You can guess what that means. Ah, without grammatos, without grammar, without a grammar school education. They were uneducated. It literally means unlettered, illiterate, or uneducated. Now, if it is possible for illiterate followers of Jesus to launch the church in the midst of a hostile situation like that, that is really good news for all of us, don't you think? But the the description of these men gets even worse. For the second word that's translated untrained is a Greek word, idiotes. Can you guess what that one means? Yeah, it means they're a bunch of idiots. Yeah, it, 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 th- these illiterate idiots were the ones that God used to launch the church. The word meant one's own or private, and it referred to a common man. Not a man who operated in the public sphere because he was gifted and articulate. No, he was a local yokel. That's what this word means. So these guys were uneducated local yokels, but they had something much more going for them. Do you see what it says? the religious leaders, but they noticed, they began to recognize that these men had been with Jesus. Have you? Maybe even this morning, before you came here? Do you not have his spirit living in you? Do you not have the full word of God in your hands, something that the apostles didn't have? They didn't have what we have in terms of the written word of God. God didn't use religious professionals to launch the church. He used ordinary people, simple witnesses who were willing to speak the truth. That's all they were, witnesses. That's what they were told in Acts 1.8. You'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Not my lawyers, my witnesses. And there is a huge difference between a lawyer and a witness. A lawyer, as we know, has a job to convince people of something. It is, his job is to argue a case with all the skill and legal brilliance he has in order to convince a jury to rule in favor of his client. A witness, on the other hand, is just told to tell what he knows. What did you hear? What did you see? What did you experience? And if a witness steps over the line and tries to start convincing a jury of something, He'll compromise the case. That's not his job. Folks, we do not have to convince anybody of anything. That's not our job. Our job is just to tell them what we know. Tell them what we've experienced. Tell them what Jesus did for us. Tell them how he forgave our sins. Tell them how he's changed our life. Tell them how he's giving us power even today over anger and lust and pride and whatever other things you're wrestling with at this point in your life. So number one, if we're going to flourish in the face of adversity, we need to commit ourselves to express the truth, to speak the truth of Christ. Secondly, we need to expose the lies of Satan. The early church didn't only have problems coming at them from the outside. They had problems internally. One of those problems is introduced to us at the end of chapter 4 through the story of a wonderful man by the name of Barnabas, Barnabas, who was so bought in to what God was doing in the church, that we're told that he sold a piece of property, and he came and he laid the proceeds of the sale at the feet of the apostles for them to use in the early church. But, you can count on it, whenever God is doing something, the enemy wants to try to counteract it, and in the very next verse, chapter 5, verse 1, there's a but. But, in contrast to Barnabas, A man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, laid it at the apostles' feet. See, the issue was not that they kept some of the money. Peter makes that clear a few verses later. He says, it was your property, it was was your possession, you didn't have to sell it when you sold it, you didn't have to give it to us. The, the issue is not that they kept back of it, some of it. The problem was that they pretended to give all of it, but they agreed together as a couple to keep some of it. In other words, they lied. Now, let me just pause here for a second to say this. Lying is serious business in God's eyes. The unbounded deceit and lying that we have in our society today does not lessen one iota. The seriousness of deceit. And I would just say to you this morning, if, if you are aware of any deceit in your life, maybe you're lying to your spouse about something, maybe you're being deceitful, or maybe in your business dealings or in some other relationship, if you are aware of deceit in your life, I urge you to deal with it, to stop justifying it, to stop hiding it, confess it, and ask God through the power of the gospel to free you of it. Okay, end of parenthesis. Now, this couple lies, and Peter challenges them. Somehow, alerted to their fraud by the Holy Spirit, he exposes their lie, and they both drop dead on the spot. Well, the point of this account is not to warn that God kills liars on the spot. If he did, where would we be today? I heard of a preacher who said, I'll tell you where I'd be. I'd be here preaching to an empty room. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't. I'd be gone too. No, the point of this account is that as hard as it is for a church to do, it must address sinful behavior in its midst if it is to flourish. We must address, when we become aware Of sin amongst ourselves, we cannot leave it go without addressing it. If we don't address it, we will never flourish as a people. Now, you might say, well, I think the opposite is true. If we had started addressing people's blatant sin in our church, everybody would leave. Well, (laughs) that's not what happened in the early church. Look what happened in chapter 5, right after Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, and they take them out and bury them. Verse 12, at the hands of the apostles... Many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they, that is the church, were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. So they dealt with the sin in their midst, and they kept thriving. But, it says, none of the rest, that is, none of those outside the church, the church would continue to gather and flourish, but none of the rest, none of those outside the church, might have been tempted to come in and start checking out this church because of all the incredible miracles, none of the rest of them, it says, dared to associate with them. So effect number one was that it kept the riffraff away. It kept the rubberneckers away who might have been tempted to come and hang out with the church because they're hearing about these miracles. No, they said, we're not getting close to those guys. They kill people like us. Uh, And so uh, you say, well, yeah, but what about the the true seekers? And didn't it keep them away? No, not at all. Verse 14 says, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. So if we're to flourish in an increasingly hostile culture, we must commit ourselves to express the truth of Christ. We must uh, commit ourselves to expose the lies of Satan or to expose the the sin when it is in our own midst. And thirdly, we must embrace the body of Christ. You can't read the book of Acts without recognizing that there was something extraordinary going on in, in their commitment to one another. And I believe that at least part of the reason that it was so uncommon is that it, what was going on in the church was so unprecedented. I mean, miracles like this, had not they hadn't seen miracles like this since the days of Elijah and, and Moses. The long-awaited hope of Israel had come. He had died. He had risen. He had gone back to heaven. And I think the believers were thinking, he's like right around the corner coming back. He could come back any time. Thousands of people, were told, were embracing the faith. That would be a very exciting context. I think those early days in the church might be likened to what happens when you first fall in love. Remember what that was like? You first fall in love with Mr. or Mrs. Wonderful. And you can't stop thinking about each other. You can't stop talking about each other. You can't stand not being with each other. I mean, you are so lovesick, you make everybody around you sick. (laughs) And then, after time, the newness and passion fades a bit, and reality sets in. She realizes that the guy she thought could walk on water can't even flush a toilet. And he realizes that the woman with whom he could dance the night night away isn't so light on her feet at 6 a.m. But when the sheen of your early love starts to fade, the last thing you should do is to settle for a marriage of mediocrity. What is needed when that initial exuberance of love begins to fade is to understand that a great marriage takes Work. It's not just all flame and fire. No, it takes work. It takes forgiveness. It takes time. It takes patience and humility and gentleness and unconditional love. And if you will give it that, your marriage 10 or 20 or 30 years down the road will not be less than it was at the beginning. It will be way more. It will be way deeper. The same is true of the church. Liberty Christian Fellowship is not less of a church than the church we read about in Acts. It's not less because it isn't all passion and fire and excitement and people bouncing off the walls and spending all their time sharing meals together and their kids sitting in circles holding each other's hands, quoting their favorite Bible verses quietly while you have... Are you serious? No, we have actually learned that our pastors aren't perfect, that our fellow believers can be really hard to love... That Brian doesn't choose all of our favorite worship songs, and that actually other believers can hurt us maybe even more than the people out there can hurt us. If that is what you have discovered here in LCF, it's normal. We're not a first love church, we've been around for a while. And there is nothing wrong with LCF if it doesn't look today like that church looked then. No, what is wrong and what is tragic is to become disillusioned with the church because we discover it's imperfect and to settle for a mediocre love. No, what, is, what makes a church great is not that it is bubbling with excitement. What makes a church great is that it is full of people who are committed to do the hard work of loving one another of investing in relationships of forgiving offenses sacrificing preferences extending grace exhibiting patience all the things that make for a great marriage are what make for a great church the kind of that kind of church that i just described not Not the kind of church that will lash out at each other because of a mask or a vaccination status, but the kind of church I just described is a church that will flourish in the face of adversity. And that's what God calls us to. Well, lastly, a church that flourishes in adversity is a church that expects to win. In other words, it is a church that knows that ultimate victory is guaranteed that the outcome is not in question, that though the opposition may look like it has the upper hand now, it will soundly be defeated when the final whistle sounds. I believe the first church understood that because what we see in Acts is that everything they encounter that is happening to them, they explain, saying this is what God said would happen to us. They understood that this whole thing was being orchestrated by God. For example, Judas' betrayal. Going back a little bit before Acts, Judas' betrayal, it wasn't off script. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, we got a bad one amongst us. No, Peter describes it in Acts chapter 1, 16. This way he says, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Judas happened because that's what God said would happen. This isn't out of control. God's got it all in control. Or Christ's crucifixion. God didn't have to call an audible at the line of scrimmage because he saw how the opposition was lining up against him. No, they were playing right into his hands. Peter described it in Acts 2 23 this way. He said, This man Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. How did all this happen? It was God's plan. Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put them to death. He said, God knew it. God planned it. You did it. The Romans helped you, and we should have known it all along because God has said that's exactly what would happen. The apostles get thrown in prison and threatened with beating, and do they sit there and bemoan their plight? No. No, the church organizes a worship service, and they say, Lord, this is exactly what you said would happen when you spoke by the mouth of our father David, saying, why did the nations rage and the peoples devise futile things? You see, the early church seemed to understand that they were not fighting a losing battle. They were fighting a winning battle that the enemy had thrown everything they had at God's Messiah, and he had just delivered them a stunning blow by coming out of the grave, demonstrating that he was very much alive, returning to his throne in heaven, and now was offering them Another chance to get on the right side of the field. You know, when you expect to win, you can actually enjoy the ride. When you go through tough times, you know what the end is going to be, and so you can enjoy the ride. And so with confidence that stunned their opponents, the apostles declared, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved." And their opponents were stunned by their confidence. Do you remember January 12th, 2020? You should. It was perhaps the greatest comeback in the history of football. (laughs) It was the Chiefs divisional final against the Houston Texans, and it was a disaster in the making. After the first uh, 19 minutes of play, the Chiefs were down 24-0. And Casey Wolfe was banging his head against the uprights, and a lot of us were probably abandoning all hope of ever ending the 50-year Super Bowl drought. And then it happened. Halfway through the second quarter, Mecole Hardman catches a punt, on his goal line, and runs it back 60 yards to the enemy's 40-yard line. That play is followed up by a 25-yard catch by Travis Kelsey. And then Damian Williams finishes off the drive. All 49 seconds of the drive from one end to the other with a touchdown. Kansas City's on the scoreboard. One touchdown. Then two touchdowns. Then three touchdowns. Then four in 10 minutes. Four touchdowns. But they weren't done. Then five touchdowns. Then six touchdowns. Six unanswered touchdowns going from 24-0 Texans to 41-24 Kansas City. And they still weren't done. By the end of the game, it was 51-31 Kansas City Chiefs. Now, I got to tell you, it was hard to enjoy that game. For the first 19 minutes. But I'll tell you something. I love watching the game. that game now. I love going back and getting the highlight reels like about 19 minutes long. I love, I love watching the Texans dance and prance in the end zone like, you know, they are, they're going to win this thing. I just say to myself, bring it on, baby. <laughs> Why? Because the... The the darker it is now, the sweeter will be the end, because I know what the end result is. So I wouldn't have cared if it was 54 to zero, if the Chiefs were gonna come back and beat them. Folks, I've got good news for you. We may feel like we're down 24-0. We may sometimes wonder what is gonna be left for our children or our grandchildren in this country the way it's going. We may think that the tide has turned against the church, or maybe you feel on a personal level like you are going through darkness that will never let up, that the sun will never shine again. I just want to remind you, the game ain't over. And the darker it is now, the sweeter it will be when that final bell rings because our Savior our captain, is the king of comebacks. Patrick Mahomes may be the savior of the chiefs, sometimes and not for very long, but Jesus Christ is the savior of the world once and for all, for all time, for all who will trust him, for all situations and for all eternity. He is the king of of creation, the King of all kings, the author of life, the risen Savior, the firstborn from the dead, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the name that is above every name. There is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must and we will be saved. So let's worship him. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would help us as your church to express your truth with kindness and clarity to address error with graciousness and courage we pray that you would help us to love your church with sacrificial love and we pray that you would Help us to keep our eye on the end, on our Savior who has guaranteed for us how this will all come out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us sing to that name that is above all other names.